This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. dive in what do you want to do uh yeah i mean 2018 is almost over we could talk about that we couldn't <laughs> talk about that tomorrow when this yeah. goes up this that'll be the last day of it the dregs of the year get all your 2018 dreams in today it's all <laughs> the or tomorrow yeah here. yeah i suppose welcome to overdue it's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew and we have a special guest whose name is it's me, Sophie. Hey, Sophie, what's going on? <laughs> Hi, friends. I'm good. How are you doing? We're doing fine. fine. I'm good. Very aware that this year is closing, mm. for better or for worse. <laughs> closing suppose. after after a decade. You know, you don't you don't have to go home, but you can't stay in 2018 anymore. If you know mm. what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Just as well, honestly. Yeah. No one no one likes this bar anymore. Have, so we, no, have we considered going back instead of forward? Hmm. Like maybe just like seven years or so, <laughs> just to like pick a number out of midair. Yeah, like a very random number. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want to go back about ten years. But... I don't want to go back too far because I still want to be an adult who has money to spend on things that I want. But I don't want to only go back a couple years because I'll know what's coming. Still, like it'll yeah. be too. Yeah, I don't have enough of a cushion. When yeah. did Breaking Bad start? Can we go back to just before Breaking uh, Bad started? What if we went back to like season three? Breaking oh, Bad. that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Because it started and then like season two had to be truncated because of the brighter strike. Is that true? That sounds possibly I, right. I think that's, I'm not sure. I think that one, one of the early seasons had to be abbreviated because of the, the writer's strike. It may have been the first one. Actually. Yeah. First season was short. Yeah. This is a book podcast. Hey, everybody. Yeah. So, yeah, this is our Breaking Bad podcast. <laughs> Breaking Bad slash year-end podcast. <laughs> Breaking Bad, even badder. Oh, man. Breaking so this, this week we are excited to have Sophie back on the show. Um, and she is going to talk to us about Pale Fire by Vladimir Nabokov. Are all of my pronunciations correct? Did I say Pale and Fire correct? You said pale and fire correctly. I'm holding up a copy of the book to the camera so that Craig can see. Okay, good. Sure, a little thank visual, you for... visual uh, <laughs> assistance here, just in case. Did I we... say the gentleman's name correctly? Probably not. I, I think it's correctly pronounced Nabokov. Nabokov. I am definitely just going to say Nabokov. Because we don't care on this we show. D- yeah, we have... I think last <laughs> time we read a Russians. Russian... Russian author, we got a lot of vowel notes, and I, yeah. I do appreciate those, and I'm not ignoring them because I did hear them, but I am just not respecting them. <laughs> yeah, his full name is Vladimir Vladimirovich Nabokov, so maybe we just call him Vladimirovich and be done we with just, it. Right, that, yeah, or yeah, or junior. Or junior. Effectively what the patronymic <laughs> communicates. So four years ago... 
Andrew and I talked about literally to the day four years ago talked about uh, Vladimir Nob- Nab- Nabokov's sure. uh, Lolita. <laughs> mm. Um, we didn't publish that on Monday. I don't know what we were doing. It came out. It's, on I think it was back before <laughs> we cared. <laughs> Well, no, we did care. It was just like back before we had advertisers <laughs> and other like obligations in um, that vein. You weren't contractually required to publish on Mondays. Right. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we did talk about him a little bit, but I'll do a quick recap. And I definitely want to get to why, Sophie, when we were talking about having you on again, this was a book that stood out to you to cover because you volunteered for this one. I and did. I, I want to. I do want to know why we, when we, we get did. There. Appre- we did appreciate you taking this big long <laughs> bullet for us. <laughs> oh boy, fool that I am. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, if you need a refresher, Nabokov was born in Saint Petersburg, Russia, 1899 to 1977. Um, he fled Russia during the Bolshevik Revolution with his family. He wound up in England and studied at Cambridge. He did some verse writing in the late 19-teens and early 1920s, um, probably throughout his career, but that's what he, some of the stuff he published first, which is going to be relevant to Pale Fire, I think. Um, he Makes was, it sound like he was writing diss tracks. Yeah, he had a mixtape. <laughs> Starting beef with all the other modernists. Yeah. Uh, and then he moved to Berlin with his family, which is where he met his wife, Vera Slonim, who we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and had his son Dimitri, I think. And then he left Berlin because 1940 and the Germans, that's all I'll say about that. Uh Um, So he migrated to the United States and that's where he spent the most of his, the rest of his life until he moved to Switzerland. But he he considered himself an American writer, um, not least of which because that's where his stuff came out first. (laughs) But I think in a quote, he said, it means that America is the only country where I feel mentally and emotionally at home. Um, He was also a lepidopterist. Yeah, butterfly studier. Yeah. We we mentioned that briefly on the last show, but I, I dug into a little bit. He is like, he is credited with the discovery or naming of a couple different species, uh, some research on the Carner Blue. He's written poems about it. Um, yeah, he's apparently a pretty, like, accomplished lepidopterist, not just a hobbyist lepidopterist. She's one of, <laughs> one of those weekend lepidopterists. <laughs> right. Monday morning like... lepidopterist. <laughs> <laughs> a real, real achiever there. Yes. Hmm. Um, Interesting. There is some butterfly and other insect stuff in this book. Interesting. Yeah. Um, a lot of cicadas. Ooh. Yeah. What is that? Mm-hmm. How would you make a cicada noise? Oh, I, I don't think humans like can. <laughs> Not like that. It's it's like a it's like a a, a rising action and then a falling. It, it is it's a wave like a, and I think they're like they are truly a chorus. Mm-hmm. Unlike crickets, who I think are just making their own little individual sounds. I think uh-huh. cicadas, I think they make their sounds. Like as a community, yeah, okay. crickets are too difficult to, to work in a group like that. Yeah, they're all no. they're they all won't take direction. Artists. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Cicadas have a much more communal approach. Um, anything about <laughs> old <laughs> Vlad Junior that we that we need to hit? Um, I have a little bit on the the book was published in 1962. Um, it's you know followed up Lolita. Um, I think it was then followed by Ada a little bit later in the 60s. Um, it is considered an example of a 
Puimenon, Puimenon, Puimena. Sounds Greek. P o i o u m e n o n. That was coined by an, an author named Alistair Fowler, which is uh, stories about the process of creation, um, the limits of narrative truth, uh, metafiction, shove your bri- your glasses up your nose until the bridge breaks, kind of stuff. I think. <laughs> yeah, and there uh, appropriately, I think for that genre, especially at that time it received like it received some very positive reviews some very negative reviews but mostly just like what (laughs) (laughs) people mostly seemed a little uh kind of mystified by what it was doing (laughs) so i i'd be i'm curious to hear more about that but uh yeah it's 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 become it's having kind of a moment i guess it was featured prominently in the new blade runner movie from last year Pale Fire. And so Pale Fire was, yeah. And so a lot of the more recent references to it that came up while I was researching was was actually all about Blade Runner. So also that that Claire Foy vehicle Unsane, that Steven Soderbergh film where she was like a crazy person Mm -hmm. or something. Or Um, was she? Or was she? Right. Um, and I think both of those that character's like favorite book is Pale Fire, I think, is how it works yeah, into that movie. But yeah both of those being about like what is real and what is not um, yes interesting yeah. and about the narrator being unreliable sure and the, yeah. the text perhaps being unreliable yes y- yes for yeah. sure so do we want to talk about vera Sloanim now do you want to dive into the book first sophie um let's dive into the book first vera should come up naturally i think okay, okay. Okay. And and like I'm I may just say hey this is where I would like to know more about Vera. Okay, cool. Let's cool, do cool, it. Cool. So what is this book? Oh boy. Well, <laughs> this book is a lot. <laughs> um okay, so uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the structure and plot as I understand them. Uh-huh. <laughs> with the enormous caveat that I think I understand them. But it's also very complex. This is one of those books that people write theses about. So absolutely, like, yeah. yes, okay. yes. And I and I saw it mentioned in the same sentence with Joyce's Ulysses. Oh, uh, which is another like monster book I have just never gotten around to, and which constitutes like a you know a gap in my cultural literacy that nonetheless I have some ambient awareness of because sure. people quote it all the time and because it's so influential. Um, so Pale Fire, I, I sort of keep in, I put in that same category. I haven't read Moby Dick, you know, that type of thing. Um, so, okay. So as I'm sure you're aware, there is a song that exists called Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. So you know how that song starts out in one register goes into the big operatic part and then switches back into its earlier register at the end. I do know that about it. Okay, great. All right. Pale Fire kind of does that, but a novel. So (laughs) (laughs) the Bohemian Rhapsody of books. Yes. We finally found it. Yes. At last. Uh, Yeah. So it's, it is very virtuosic. I don't, I don't think Nabokov takes it too seriously. Mm. Kinboat, who is the narrator of the book, does definitely take it that seriously, for sure, for sure. So 
What Pale Fire itself is, is a 1,000 line poem broken up into four cantos written by the fictional John Shade. It's an autobiographical poem and it incorporates uh, themes like death, including his own eventual death that he is kind of obsessed with. Also the very sad death by suicide of his teenage daughter, Hazel. Um, there's a lot of stuff about nature, the aforementioned cicadas, um, love. There's some really lovely stuff about his wife, Sybil, um, and the afterlife and like what it might be or what it can't possibly be. Um, and that poem, which I wish I had given myself enough time to reread before coming back <laughs> to this conversation, but I didn't, mm-hmm. um, is sand is sandwiched between two very long winded elements which are written by Shade's neighbor, who imagines himself to be friends with Shade, uh, this guy named Charles Kinboat. They teach at the same college uh, somewhere in Appalachia. Kinboat may or may not be the deposed and exiled king of Zembla, which is a small Eastern European country that in the timeline of the book is presently being overrun by the Soviets. I feel like if there's any question... Then probably he is. Right. He, <laughs> he believes, well, he provides so much information about the incredibly intimate personal life of this deposed king that, like, you, the reader, come to understand very quickly that he's this king, Charles okay. Xavier. Charles mm-hmm. Xavier! I read, Whoa. I'm like, wait a minute. Uh, did did Nabokov invent the X-Men? Does, <laughs> disappointingly there's very little mutant stuff that goes on in this book i was well, i was it's, really it's hidden from public view because they don't want to be persecuted true yeah. true true uh but charles kinboat is not i don't like him as much as i like Doc, professor x so so um, quickly charles kinboat yeah. when he's writing about the deposed king of zembla he's not saying i am yeah here's what happened he is writing no. about this guy and yes. you're like oh it's me Oh, oh, it's yeah, that dude. Okay. I, I'm like, oh, you're detailing like the the royal apartments of the King of Zembla. Oh, you're telling me every detail about the King of Zembla's uh, relationship with his wife. Um, you're te- oh, you're telling me like all this really, really detailed information about uh, the extremely homosexual sex life of the King of Zembla. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is stuff that you wouldn't know unless you yourself were the deposed king of Zembla. <laughs> Checks out. Okay. So, so, or maybe, he, maybe like possibly one of his homosexual lovers. Could, possibly, could be, could be, could be. So, but it, it, by the end of so the the second so the first bit is the introduction to the novel. The second bit is the poem itself. And the third bit, which is the vast bulk of the novel, is what actually makes it a novel. And that is all of Kinboat's uh, commentary slash footnotes. Okay. Neat. So he foot, this is a 999 line poem. The thousandth line is allegedly missing, but in the end you find out what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, Kinboat. So Kinboat basically takes the opportunity as he's writing all this commentary and all the footnotes to tell the reader the story that he thinks the poem should have been about, which is <laughs> his, <laughs> which is his experiences as the deposed, exiled, 
narrowly avoided assassination king of Zembla. Got it. Okay. Um, so he believes that he narrowly survived an assassination attempt. And you also learn a whole lot about the absolute blundering foolishness of the um the would-be assassin who accidentally instead kills Shade. So that's the connection. Okay. Yes. At so, least so okay. Kinboat is Shade's next door neighbor. And he like hero worships Shade. And it's clear from his narration that he thinks that he and Shade are BFF. <laughs> but it's equally clear to the reader that he is clueless and delusional. And Shade tolerates him. Mm-hmm. And what what Kinboat has done over the last it's the last month or so of Shade's life is like give him all these suggestions that he thinks are very smooth about what he should write about, about the, you know, the sad history of the last King of Zembla (laughs) (laughs) and like all this stuff about Zemblin history and stuff that he, and he's so convinced that that's what Shade has written his magnum opus about that when he finally does read it after Shade's accidental murder, I cannot believe that there's no Zemblin stuff in this book. I gave him pure gold and he gives me this like reflective, autobiographical, <laughs> sensitive, introspective stuff? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Like he's incensed. So this feels to me, and come with me on this journey. Sure. If they made the Terminal 2 and you followed Tom Hanks's character, like suppose that after the events of the Terminal, he moves into a home in, in America to get away from the strife and his native Krakosia. Krakosia. I feel like he would be the Kimboat character. He would have a next door neighbor who Mm -hmm. he thought was his best friend, but who he really annoyed. And he'd be like telling him stuff to write all the time. This is so this is my pitch for the terminal too. Sure. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yes. I I would go along for that ride. That sounds good. I think the writers of the terminal two would also, uh, it would be good for them to re-listen to Eminem's Stan, which also seems (laughs) relevant to this discussion. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, it does. Hey Slim, I wrote you, but you still ain't calling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me tell mm-hmm. you about my time as the king of Zembla. <laughs> it also makes me think of any like any time you go to talk to like well-meaning relatives who you don't talk to that much about like what your job is, and they're like, yes. "Well, why don't you do this thing? Why don't oh, you boy. write about this?" I know I have a friend uh, who works at the at the theater I work at, who is one of our uh, stage managers. She took a cab once. The guy asked her what she did. She tried to explain it to him, and he gave her a screenplay he had written that he was just carrying around in his cab. Uh-huh. So, like, wow, for just that eventuality, yeah, just in case she found herself in a position to like make stars, always yeah. be hustling. <laughs> you always. never know, exactly. Yeah, I don't exactly. want I don't want to knock Kimbo too much because always be hustling, of course. <laughs> yes, Kimbo is nothing if not a hustler. Okay. And he was hustled out of Zembla. It sounds he like was that. hustled out of Zembla. Um, yes, and actually, that's a that's one of the more fun parts of the book when he's telling the story of how he escaped and how it was like a lot of it involved a lot of royal loyalists dressing up in his sort of trademark outfit so that the rebels couldn't 
detect which one was the real sure king. with all the fake Saddams. Um, you you've mentioned a couple times that his like Kinboat's understanding of events, and then you, the reader's understanding of events, is like different. <laughs> like you pick up subtext that he is clearly missing. How like yes? How reliable is he? Like how how do you? take anything that he has to say seriously yeah, if, if you that's... get the if, if you have a sense this whole time that he's kind of full of himself and not maybe an impartial uh describer of what is going on yeah i think it's hard to say like it, it sort of comes through so first of all his unbelievableness as a narrator begins to come through very early when he's he just says these fabulous things like like he is a fabulist Mm -hmm. so like he'll say something and i'll just think like what why would you say this hang on one (laughs) second i'm gonna go to the beginning uh this is early in the commentary he's referring to line 12 um which he just puts like a teensy reference to it but i'll read the i will read the line okay so the this particular I'm not sure if it's a stanza that goes in a canto, but the paragraph, let's say. A poem um, piece. Yeah. A, po- a, a, a poem a, yeah. block. A block a of po- one unit of poetry. <laughs> a chunk. A, or, ooh, it's, maybe it's a cubit. <laughs> like the biblical arc. Okay. So he's reflecting on death, and also there's some nature. And um, upon that snow, out in that crystal land. So this um, bit that kinboat is talking about is in reference to that crystal land immediately jumps in we're at line 12 of a 999 line poem (laughs) okay and here's where we go perhaps an allusion to zembla my dear country after this in the disjointed half obliterated draft which i am not at all sure i have deciphered properly and there follow two two new lines that aren't in the finished version of the poem Ah, I must not forget to say something that my friend told me of a certain king. Um, And and then he immediately launches into some stuff about, like, the rebellion in Zembla. And I'm like, how do you know? Like, (laughs) what what besides your, like, deep desire for it to be so makes you think that this is about your your dear country, Zembla? So this is cool because, like, on the one hand, we don't, we also don't know if any of the Zembla stuff is real on its right. face, which is one question. Right. But we are also then just like the commentator on this fictional poem. His commentary may also be fictional and, right. and is inherently untrustworthy. I do have a question. Is Are we to understand or is it your read on uh, Kimboat's stuff that he is like doing the commentary in real time or has he like – is has he edited his notes is my main question like oh does he come uh, to a conclusion that it is less about zembla than he thought by the end of his notes or is it all one go he seems like the kind of guy this is i mean i didn't read the book obviously but he seems like <laughs> the kind of guy who on those tests that say read the entire test before you get started and then the last (laughs) question is don't do any of the tests just turn it right he does not seem like the kind of guy who would read the whole thing first and then get going it seems like he would be writing his thoughts down as he has them it seems like a mishmash he does say at the end 
that he read the whole poem through in one go. Okay. Mm-hmm. After Shade died. Okay. And was absolutely flummoxed. Like, mm, okay. was it wasn't making notes? Was reading it? Basically, was tearing through it. Like you know how um, if I don't know, like if 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 there was a a piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer about like great Philadelphia podcasts, you would be scanning reasonably. You would be scanning through it to look for a reference to this one. Sure. That's true. We would Your first read. Your mm-hmm. second or third read, you would go through it more carefully and want to look at like the full context and look for other podcasts that you might wish to listen to created by fellow creative types in the city. But well, your especially, first especially if I had not seen our podcast in that list. Right. I would yes. be like, well, what what, what evidence can I find that you're an idiot so yeah. I can discount <laughs> this thing? Well, and on my dish. on my fourth or fifth read, I would probably like have read a biography of the like article's author. Um, or like it looked like looked at their Twitter feed and then like started to infer things about their choices right based right. on metatextual information yeah. yes okay so um yeah so his first read of the poem he says this is at the very very end um that he tore through it you know looking for references to himself or to Zembla etc and it wasn't there and oh my gosh like what a like, what on earth did John Shade, the poet, write? Like, what is this? Sure. And um, he manages. So he's, to me, the purpose of the introduction and the commentary is to wrest control of the narrative back to himself, where he believes it belongs, right? Okay. 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 Fine. And like, in you know, you can look at it as the natural, logical endpoint of the idea that the author is dead and that you know you all that matters is what the reader brings to a text yep um at the same time i think that it is mocking that idea yeah like i think it's doing both at the same time which is really that's very interesting um so he's he's attempted to like wrest control of the narrative away but that 10 that's it, it falls apart at the very end because for a couple of reasons, one being that maybe he's delusional um, and two, it's possible that Zembla doesn't even exist within the context of the novel itself. Yeah. So like, so part of the story in the commentary is the, you know, the King's amazing escape from Zembla, um, his, ability to elude various assassins um his eventually settling he jumps out of a parachute or i mean he jumps with a parachute out of an airplane basically onto the campus or like <laughs> campus adjacent mm-hmm. to this little little college uh words wordsmith college come on yeah no i know <laughs> A lot of the wordplay in this book is subtle, but there's a lot of Nabokov just sort of being like, hey, check it out, guys. English isn't even my first language, but look at all this dazzling stuff I can do. Um, There's a lot of that. And I don't blame him. I can't hate. He does a good job. Um, Sometimes the easy easy wordplay is just too tempting. Like you can't. Right. How are you going to yeah. leave that alone? It's been mm-hmm. teed up for you. You can't. Um, yeah. So the and one of the other bits of the story 
is that his deposers back in Zembla have sent an assassin after him. And his assassin is not great at his job. And also, like, the little cabal that is giving him directions as to what to do, like, they're not great at their job either. They communicate in a code that's in a third language that none of them really is fluent in. So the code kind of falls apart and frequently he misinterprets their directives. Like, he thinks he's supposed to go from Geneva to Nice. And he gets to Nice and he, like, you know, sends them an encoded cable to let them know, like, hey, guess what, guys? I'm in Nice. I'm ready to go for whatever the next thing is. And they immediately get back to him saying, you dummy. Like, why are you there? (laughs) What are you doing? And he's like, oh, I thought I was supposed to come here because this is where the deposed queen lives. And I thought I was supposed to talk to her. No. And they're like, no, (laughs) you need to go to America. (laughs) So anyway, he's not great at his job. And in fact, part of what makes it impossible for him to like get off the kill shot at Kinboat, assuming Kinboat is the actual Sure. Assuming there is even a real intended victim. Yeah. He can't get off the kill shot accurately because he gets such a bad stomach bug. I mean, we all been there, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, Who hasn't had an who's, attack who's who's among us. amongst us has not. I mean, I think the only person real or fictional who has not gotten a bad case of pre-assassination trots is probably mike ermintrout mm, sure mm. late of breaking bad and better call Saul. just to like wrap that back yeah. in there iron um, stomach mike they call him i that yeah. they did for a reason yeah poor old, now, now poor I old really... greatest can't do it but then it seems like <laughs> at the and so i'm sorry this is taking a long time no this it's okay it's, it's, it's okay As i was just gonna say that i have this deep overwhelming need now <laughs> to see kind of a a comedic like maybe an HBO half hour yes. show about yes. an assassin with IBS. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's what they'll do for season two of Barry. Maybe that. Yeah. Ooh, I would maybe. watch that. Yeah. Me too. I mean, I already watched season one and thought it was great. <laughs> um, yes. There. Uh, uh, put a pin in that. I do want to come back to it because I did have a think about like how on earth this book could be adapted for the screen, large or small. Okay. Mm. Um, so I do have a, a thought about that, but um the thing that really makes Kinboat's whole story about how he's the king of Zembla, bloggity bloggity blue, and his grandiose, <laughs> oh, messy as heck um, story about his own life is like that all falls apart because at, at the very, very end, it seems like maybe the assassin isn't really an assassin from Zembla. Maybe he's just an escaped inmate of the local mental hospital oh who just like somehow got his hands on a gun like no one will corroborate kinboat's story about greatest the assassin the would-be assassin and if and if there's no information to corroborate that greatest is anyone other than who he says he is and he himself claims to be an escaped inmate from a mental asylum sure so if nobody will corroborate kinboat's incredibly grandiose story about greatest then 
what undergirds his the rest of his story about the existence of Zembla and him maybe wink wink nudge nudge being the deposed king of that country like nothing it's all and then and then another layer down anything he has to say about this poem that you read anything at all (laughs) anything at all so like it's you know there's an element of okay the author is dead and all that matters is reader reception but there's also an element of what if the reader is so detached from reality yeah yeah that you know what 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 if the reader is bad, basically? What if the reader is bad? Right. Like, what I if guess... the author is good and the reader is bad? <laughs> yeah. If it had only been this lengthy poem, there would be no novel. Yeah. It's, only, yeah. it's really only a novel because of all the endnotes. Yes, of course. The David Foster Wallace yeah. approach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's a very, very dense text. Um... It's there's as I was reading it, I thought, oh, this is interesting because for sure Nabokov didn't imagine to my knowledge, which is limited. But like, I don't think that Nabokov in the 1950s was imagining the existence of the Internet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But this text is full of like analog hyperlinks. Yeah. So it reminded me of um two as i was researching it, it reminded me of two borges stories and there's and borges is, is like has a lot of stuff that's about kind of hypertext yeah um there's one the exa- an examination of the work of herbert quain which is about like a fictional irish author and he just borges would do that he'd just review works that didn't exist by people that yeah. aren't real <laughs> um and there's one that we talked about on the show many moons ago um in a borges episode uh, pierre menard author of the quixote about a dude who immerses himself so thoroughly in Don Quixote that his translation is a literal word-for-word rewriting of Don Quixote. And Borges is like, well, is this a different book? Because a (laughs) different guy wrote it at a different time? What does that mean? Um, I think from what I know about, like... The, the design of like processors and electronics if it's a clean room like reverse engineering oh yeah no access thing. no direct access to the text of don quixote and recreated it then it is its own original work <laughs> <laughs> but you would need to i think you would need to demonstrate that he yeah he had not yeah he didn't have access to the original text so can on on your experience as a reader soph like did you and this is a thing that people talk about when they talk about how they read Infinite Jest sometimes, too. Mm. Did you bop back and forth the whole time through? Did you just, like, mainline the poem like a line of coke and then, like, go back to the end <laughs> notes later? Um, so Kinboat actually has instructions in the introduction Uh-oh. as to what he wants the reader to do. And I tried <laughs> to do it and then was like, I can't do this. <laughs> That is not going to work for me. So what he wa- what what he instructs the reader to do is obviously finish reading the introduction mm-hmm. and flip back and forth between the poem and the commentary. Okay. That's what he really wants you to do. And I did attempt it and I couldn't understand the poem. Sure. Yeah. Because it was just too chopped up. And, well, and also because uh, of the, like what Kinboat thinks the poem is about and what the poem is about sounds like it's probably pretty disparate. They, so. they yes, they definitely diverge. Yeah. Um, and both the poem and the commentary are incredibly digressive. So, 
You'll get lost. Yeah. There's the degree of difficulty is a problem for me. Like I'm sure. I'm I'm ambivalent about this book. I think I come down in the end pretty squarely in the in the positive zone. Um, I love I'm glad. that place. I'm, I'm, love it's a good. It's a good zone. zone. I like the positive zone. Uh, it's better than Chuck E. Cheese. It's less noisy. Well, I mean, yeah. maybe it might. It sounds like it is one of those creative works that you can be like impressed by, and you can like really appreciate yeah. what it's doing without being like, "This is my favorite thing," and I'm gonna evangelize about it and, and like think about it forever. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think there's a part of me that wonders, like, to what degree does Nabokov want the text to be so challenging that it is off-putting to certain mm. readers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like, h- how much value do we place on degree of difficulty as a criterion when we're evaluating, like, the value and merit of a text? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and my definitely my experience has been that you can have really interesting, thoughtful, philosophical, critical conversations about really dumb texts. Like, (laughs) really, really, like, not well-written, extremely accessible, even stupid books (laughs) can yield really interesting conversations. And it really has to... The responsibility, I think, lies with the reader to approach them that way yeah i mean look at the look at the body of work that is grown up around the room that not the it's a film right not a the film, right yes yeah. yes yes but that's a, that's a text too for yeah. sure yeah absolutely in its way <laughs> well yeah and but so like the way that this thing works is it has to be in a way i don't know could you write this book about and have it be a like series of limericks with <laughs> like commentary about like I think the the opus level uh standing of what Shade purportedly did right. is like certainly informing what Nabokov tried to do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, or is I, up or is up you know, up to, I don't know. I, I think you you might not even have to change the form of the poem. Sure. Like you might I don't think the poem itself really resists resists reading yeah okay it's it is digressive it is very elusive so you need to understand all the illusions that he's making or at least be able to look them up um but i don't think that the poem itself is as reader resistant as the like the format of it and particularly the commentary yeah um which is very confounding um I I do think though that it would be oh, it would be very challenging um, for whoever was doing the typesetting or whatever we call typesetting now that we no longer set type, um, but like it would be really interesting and maybe more accessible to a contemporary reader if the commentary were physically laid out around the poem. Like you would have to break up the canto, uh, not the, the the stanzas or whatever, the cubits. Um, (laughs) Because frequently, frequently he'll go off on this like five page rant inspired by, that's prompted by like three words in a line. Um, 
so that would be really challenging um, and would certainly, it would disrupt the reader's fluid reading of the poem, but it would also conform more neatly to Kinboat's stated preference that you toggle back and forth between the poem and the, and the commentary. And the commentary would be physically right there, so you would not have to flip a hundred pages forward yeah. Yeah, see, that's, to read that's... what he's saying. What's interesting, like you mentioned, you don't think that Nabokov has any knowledge of the internet or of like hyperlinks or anything. I don't think but so. But when I was reading Infinite Jest, um, I read almost exclusively on a Kindle and they do, mm. they can like hyperlink footnotes like that. Yes. So so if you had read like an ebook version of it instead of the the physical version mm-hmm. of it, I wonder if your your reading style would have changed at all. Because it does make it easier to like click ahead and then you just tap back and then you're back where you were. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually might be a real improvement. I, yeah, I don't know because I read, I read hard copy. Mm-hmm. But, there are um, other, there also like I know House of Leaves, um, the Dan Olusky novel that we covered, the spooky house book, um, <laughs> has a lot of that kind of meta text stuff going on and some of it is treated as like actual endnotes. Some of it are f- traditional footnotes. Some of it are like weird graphs that appear sideways on the page because the book's crazy. Um, and there are, there are also Foster Wallace essays that experiment with how uh, like meta text is presented. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember what the topic is. It might be about conservative talk radio, but there's oh, one in, I think, Consider the Lobster that has uh-huh. like almost infographic level like arrows and boxes <laughs> pointing to things interesting um, that just kind of change your experience of reading it um I, it doesn't solve what you were talking about sophie of like comprehension of the source text becomes an issue um but if kinboat's intention whatever nabokov's up to is that the source text is supposed to always be in conversation with the hyper or meta text or whatever you want yeah. to call it yeah um, hmm. and that's interesting because like that's 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 a problem that whoever did the layouts of talmud and uh oh, sure like, they figured that out a long time ago like that's exactly <laughs> what they did and actually we have a um for passover there was a a new haggadah that came out a few years ago where they use it's a it's a beautiful like oversized very impractical book um but uh there's so there's like the text and then all around it is the commentary oh neat from from a variety of authors which i think is really interesting and that is like a callback to like these 12th and 13th century huh Mm -hmm. um yeah i would be really interested to know like if you know we could wake up nabokov and say hey man did you know (laughs) <laughs> it's possible for us to like we've we figured out a way to like make it easier for readers to do what you slash kinboat wanted them to do sure sure um do you I wonder think if the, he, i wonder if he actually would be insulted like if if, if the if the <laughs> if the oh, effort and the confusion is supposed right. to be part of the experience or yeah. if he really would like celebrate this this thing that makes it easier to do what he says you're supposed to do yeah, yeah. Uh, I have to say I have a really strong opinion about yeah. <laughs> what his opinion would be. Uh-oh. Like if well if he, if he was like no degree of difficulty is part of the genius of my work, I would 
extend two middle fingers in his direction. Like, <laughs> sure. it just, yeah. Well, because I know that's that was definitely part of the point of House of Leaves, right? Craig is yes. like having to read the book upside down and sideways well, to like was a, see everything that was going on. It was for, in that instance, it was a way to put you in the all to put you in the, like the emotional state of the characters who are disoriented, like in mm. this physical space. It is about disorientation. It is about confusion in yeah. a place that you think is safe. So to like have a book lie to you and confuse you like physically uh, <laughs> it is a, is a way to get that across. Whereas this actually, it's like, it sounds like it's a novel about Kimbo that just happens to have a poem in it. Right. For him to right. jump off of. That, and that's, I mean, like, when I say that this book is virtuosic, that's a perfect example of, like, probably the most virtuosic thing about the book, which is the idea that this 1,999 line of um, work would be almost incidental Yeah. Mm-hmm. to the rest of it. And, like, that, the poem is beautiful. And it's complex and it's rich there's a ton of enjambment yes obviously (laughs) all of us (laughs) um it's it's great and that's actually if i were to reread any bit of this book it would it would be the poem the poem by far like by an easy easy margin now that being said like this book is vexing and it and it is built has all these built-in barriers to reading it and to understanding it um but at the same time like the that complexity doesn't feel like something that Nabokov had to work at particularly yeah like there's there's like this exuberance in his incredible and disparate ability that is really really fun I mean it's like when you what like when I watch the Olympics and, you know, a skater just nails that triple axle or quadruple axles they're doing now. Like these young, these young people, it's amazing. But it's like that when you watch that, and you're like, my God, like, how did they do that? And what you don't see is like the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours yes. of ice time and all the times that they fell and all of the like, you know, school trips they didn't go on or whatever. Their injuries. Sure, sure. You know, sleep that they missed out on. Um, to get them to the point where they could execute that and it would just look like, well, of course they did. What else would they do? Mm-hmm. You know? And that's kind of how reading this book feels. Like there's a lot of, you can feel the joy in his writing, which I think is really impressive. Like he's having fun. Yeah. And a guy who did, did you know, write a bunch of poetry and publish mm-hmm. poetry to write a thousand-ish line poem and then yeah. make it the second banana to the book seems purposefully playful and irreverent mm-hmm. regarding his own skill. Yes. Um, yes. And regarding and regarding like the idea of what a novel is. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is really interesting. Um you want to make like, sure we talk about Vera. I do. So. so, yes, I absolutely do. So, I wanted to talk about um Vera Nabokov in large part because um Shade, John Shade's wife, Sybil, plays a role. And actually, I one thing I wish that the reader could know more of, and this may exist like in some critical edition of the book, um, is more about Shade's wife, Sybil, and her contributions to his work. Because there is a point at which... 
it becomes clear that from the beginning, Kinbo really, 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 really wants to be um, Shade's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? His, um, his confidant. Okay. And, um, and to have an influence over this poem that he sort of feels like, oh, this is going to be a master work. Like, I can't wait to read this. This sounds incredible. And he has a conversation with Sybil where he's sort of, he's a, he's a total creeper and stalker. That's the other thing uh-huh. we need to talk about. <laughs> I never he could like, have guessed based on everything else I've, I know about him so yes. far. <laughs> You're so surprised, I'm sure, <laughs> to hear this. Like, What? How can that be? He seems so like <laughs> respectful of other people's boundaries. No. Um, he So he lives in the house next door. Uh, they live in the forest. Um, but he can, because there's like no light pollution, you know, he can see at night across this little, you know, copse of trees. He can see what's going on in the Shade's house, like when the lights are going on or when they're going off or when one of them is walking in front of the television. Like he can sort of make out whether it's Sybil's silhouette or John's silhouette um, and like, Oh, the lights were out, but then at 3 AM I happened, I happened to notice, uh-huh. you know, they were back on <laughs> in his study. Oh, you just happened to notice at 3 AM. Yeah. Really? Just, I just happened to, I wasn't staying <laughs> up all night. You were staying up all night. <laughs> I, I saw wasn't... you staying up all night. <laughs> exactly. I saw you with my binoculars that I just happened to have on my person at all times. So, so, you know, he's been up, creeping on the shades uh, and he sort of just like coincidentally ambles over to their house and he's chatting with Sybil who's like digging in the garden or whatever and he basically is fishing for an opportunity to um, to read some of what John's been writing on his little index cards um, which is an interesting note because Nabokov himself used index cards to draft a lot yeah, of his he work. Yeah he did. He did. So like there's an element of like he definitely has put some of himself in John Shade, and that that somewhat leads me to wonder how much of Vera is in Sybil. Mm-hmm. And Sybil basically just says to him, no, he never, ever lets anyone read any of his drafts before it's completely done. Like, we're not going to know anything about this, you know, until he's he's wrapped it up. And Kinboat initially is like, okay, okay, fine, 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 fine. But then one other night, he just happens to notice that John is reading aloud to Sybil while he's lurking out there on their back porch and can hear through the kitchen door. (laughs) How dare she lie to him? She lied. (laughs) And yeah, so I would like to know if it is known to what degree Vera, Vera was the confidant. Um, And like, what, what role did she play in how Nabokov like developed his stories you know did she line edit did she just give like general advice was she a sounding board yeah I mean I I can't speak to all of that but the reason I can't speak to all of that is kind of integral to her personality Mm. (laughs) so her whole deal is that she was she was really really secretive um Mm. to the point where um so uh, so we've got a collection of Nabokov's letters called Letters to Vera uh, that was published in 2015 by Knopf. And um, there's, you know, th- there was a lot of um, 
translation work and research and, and editing that went into it. Brian Boyd, who was uh, Vladimir Nabokov's mm. biographer, was involved in, in translating and, and getting all the stuff together. Um, and we've got something like, I think, 500 pages of letters from him to his wife. Okay. Wow. But at an earlier point when um, a, a biography of, of Nabokov was being written, I think I think by Boyd. I'm not 100% sure. He's I think written by Boyd. two of them, I believe. Yeah. So, yeah. so she actually burned all of her letters to him. And like huh. even even on like postcards or whatever that, that were written to like family members, she would go and, and like black out what she had written on them. Sick Hamilton reference. <laughs> so she was, you know, all of all of Nabokov's um, English language books and, and many of his Russian language books are dedicated to her. Um, she was was big into like protecting and, and curating his image after he died because she survived him by a number of years. Um, she was definitely involved in his work and a big like creative influence for him. A lot of his early love letters, especially, are like very literary mm-hmm. and and this the, I, there was a piece in the new yorker about this collection of letters by judith thurman and it notes um how they become a lot more about like indigestion and, and like getting oh. dressed and like they become a lot less um it's like efforty, those, those word clouds that you see of like when you're texting someone while you're dating and it's like, <laughs> Hey, you up? Like, mm-hmm. when do you, like, when do you want a bone? And then like, when you get married, all the tech clouds are like dinner right. and kids and <laughs> cars broken mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. But he's like, okay. he's writing to her all the time. And some of his writing is in fact complaining about how rarely she writes him back. So like clearly. <laughs> oh, so thirsty. Yeah. Like his, her approval and her like, her opinion meant a lot to him, even as mm. he, you know, slept around. Mm. Uh, he bragged about nice. his wife to his mistresses. So, what? <laughs> like he was big <laughs> into her. Okay. But huh. we we just don't know that much like specificity ab- about mm. her. Um, this is from a book that Stacy Schiff wrote. I think uh, it won the it won a Pulitzer Prize in two thousand. So nice. Stacy Schiff wrote a book. Um, called Vera, Mrs. Vladimir Nabokov. Um, that's about Vera. And uh, she has in here a quote from Vera to Boyd. Uh, the more you leave me out, Mr. Boyd, the closer to truth you will be. Hmm. Um, in the course of the same conversations, you conceded, despite Boyd's taste in shirts and without deigning to elaborate, I am always there, but well hidden. That, huh. that jives with uh, the sole mention of her uh, in his biography on famousauthors.org. Uh <laughs> Quote, his extremely supportive wife did everything for him, including typing, editing, proofreading, translating, and driving, etc. Mm-hmm. And driving, etc. Et <laughs> and there's, even, there's that famous anecdote where he was going to burn Lolita and then she'd stop yep. him from doing it. So, yeah, like, obviously she has this huge outsized influence on his work that... um you know, that he would read stuff to her before it was done. It seems mm-hmm. completely in character with everything else I read. Yep. But yeah, we don't we don't have a lot of specific anecdotes because she was so careful about erasing herself from his his narrative. narrative. Yeah. <laughs> well, well. Yeah. Well, uh, that seems to be of a piece with the Sybil that we see in this book, who is really shrewd. Mm. Um, shrewd and, and and protective of her relationship yes yes, yeah. yes. 
Um, interestingly, so as I'm reading this, you know, I know that Kinboat has somehow managed to wrest control of of the poem and its entire publication. Sure. From Sybil. And I'm thinking, how on earth did he inveigle his way? Like he must what did he do to get her to agree? Because I, you know, she it's she's not she's nobody's fool. She's not there to be a doormat. Um, and she has no compunction about saying to him, no, not right now. Do you know what I mean? Like she's, yeah. she's every time Kinboat calls the house to talk to John, she's the one who answers the phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she usually says, I'm sorry, he's not available. Um, he says he's not here. <laughs> he says he's not here. Exactly. So, um, so what happened? Well, the thing that happened is that um, it appears that Kinboat, like when the incompetent ass- and and poopy pants assassin comes, <laughs> he, he can't, he's shooting and he keeps shooting and shooting and he actually like grazes Kinboat a couple times, but the, uh, the fatal shot lands in Shade's chest, like after they're running back from the house, because he's sitting, he's such a nitwit that he's just sitting up on Kinboat's porch. Yeah. Like in full view, the way a really great stealth assassin does mm-hmm. um, when they're setting up on their on their victim. Anyway, um, so it, it, you know, in the in all of the the confusion of being shot at, Shade had been walking behind Kinboat, and Kinboat like shoved, tried to shove him out of the way, because whatever else he may have been, I, he really did care about Shade. And about Shade's genius, and Shade had finished the poem, and was they had they were going back to Kinboat's house so that Kinboat could read it, and he had it in this like big Manila envelope, like uh, each of the cantos in their sections of index cards, sort of rubber banded together, um, and uh, Kinboat was carrying it, and the, um, the 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 stupid assassin came along um, when oh so when they're able to get to tell Sybil like this terrible news, like your husband has been accidentally murdered. Um, she's so grateful to Kinboat for trying to protect John that she's crying and saying, Oh my God, like how can I ever repay, you know, your kindness and your, you know, you tried to save my husband. I really appreciate that. You know, what can I do? And Kinboat is right there with Sybil. The one thing <laughs> that I, I, I could never take, money from you i could never take anything like that no but the one thing that i i would accept in in gratitude would be you know your approval of my bringing this wonderful manuscript which at that point he had not yet read um (laughs) to publication this is the weirdest episode of curb your enthusiasm that i've ever heard about (laughs) and she immediately says yes and um I think what's so great about the poem, one of the things that's so great about the poem is that, like, even though Kinboat had total control over what it was going to say, like, he's the one who who pulls the final copy out of all yeah. these index cards, even he can't make it say what he wants it to say. That's cool. Which I think is really interesting. So, like... He's trying, he's thinking, oh, sweet, I will have the last word as to what this actually is because John is dead. 
but no that's not what happened so mm-hmm. i and i i think that that is really interesting and clever in a way that is substantive not it's not clever it for its own yeah. sake yeah. yeah it says something that's worth saying and worth thinking about um you know are we to think so uh, when you mentioned that uh nabokov dedicated so many of his works to his wife this one is dedicated to her as well um but the what is it that we call a quote that comes at the beginning of a book it's not it's not the pro it's the it's forward a, the preface no, no 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 it's just like a little chunk like Dedication? a little blurb the epitaph I think that's, that's a, at the end. What you put on a tombstone? No, that's the. Epigraph? It also goes at the. Ep- oh, we're gonna have to look this one up. Sorry, friends who are listening, as we cast about for whatever this word is. But um, an epigraph. Like a, and it's an epigraph. An epigraph. Okay, it's an epigraph. Great. You said so, epitaph first, though. I want yes, the record no, I to did. show. I, but I got it right. It's an okay. epigraph. <laughs> it is an epigraph. Hurrah! Okay, so the epigraph is. This reminds me of the ludicrous account he gave Mister Langton of the despicable state of a young gentleman of good family. Sir, when I heard of him last, he was running about town shooting cats. And then, in a sort of kindly reverie, he bethought himself of his own favorite cat and said, but Hodge shan't be shot. No, no, Hodge shall not be shot. And that is from James Boswell, The Life of Samuel Johnson, which I, you know, I read that weeks ago and thought, okay, well, I know what this is going to be like. And then totally forgot that that was in there mm. until uh, just now, after I had written some notes to myself, like some of the literary humor that I really relish in this book is that Kinbo clearly thinks of himself as Boswell mm-hmm. to Shades Johnson. But I had completely forgotten about this epigraph <laughs> until like two <laughs> minutes ago when I reread it. I was like, oh, Great. Your insight was not that brilliant, Sophie. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I feel I I wish that I left myself enough time on, on, on some books to like wrap back around and read like the yeah. first couple chapters of it right after yeah. I finish it so I can like make the the thematic connections a little bit better, especially in a book that I like started a long time ago and then didn't yeah. finish until more recently. Yeah. Speaking of like going back to the text and coming up with other theories or, you know, digesting themes uh, that you didn't have time for on your first read, because this book has been poured over for decades now, there are schools of thought as to what it actually is. Oh, um, tell us, tell us. So Why did there I keep are coming the... back to what if the reader is bad. <laughs> Yeah, what if the reader is bad? Um, there are Shadians who think uh-huh. that John Shade wrote all of the commentary and that it's just him. Whoa. Whoa, right? There are Kimbodians mm-hmm. who think that Kimbo invented Shade himself and that this is all a ruse. Okay. And then there's a thing that even Nabokov has addressed directly in a quote where he said, Palefire is full of plums that I keep hoping somebody will find. For instance, the nasty commentator is not an ex-king of Zembla, nor is he Professor Kinboat. He is Professor Botkin or Botkine, a Russian and a madman. And I don't think he is saying that that is like canonically definitely what happened but that he is excited by the idea that you could read the text that way yeah and Which, um it, what sure yeah okay <laughs> anything literally anything is possible actually this leads to the the last little quote i wanted to share 
So um, this is Kinboat talking again, uh, and he's talking about uh, these portraits of Zemblin princes and princesses over the years mm-hmm. um, done by this uh, portraitist named Einstein, not Einstein, <laughs> but not not Einstein. So uh, in some of these portraits, Einstein had also resorted to a weird form of trickery. Among his decorations of wood or wool, gold or velvet, he would insert one which was really made of the material elsewhere imitated by paint. This device, which was apparently meant to enhance the effect of his tactile and tonal values, had, however, something ignoble about it and disclosed not only an essential flaw in Eistein's talent, but the basic fact that, quote, reality is neither the subject nor the object of true art, which creates its own special reality, having nothing to do with the average, quote, reality perceived by the communal eye. <laughs> is Nabokov just spending 300 plus pages messing with us because that is this book could be a troll it feels like, like one in its totality which is funny because the first time I was on this show I was talking about Speedboat by Renata Adler yeah and she that book and she herself are big trolls too <laughs> so I don't know what it says about me that like I hate trolling but yet i'm drawn to literary trolling i don't know yeah it's it's if it is trolling like like the the kind of trolling i hate the most is the sort of nihilist nothing matters trolling same where with the with a book like clearly enough effort has gone into its creation and into like getting you to read it where I don't know, like like the author is kind of inviting you to just appreciate a good troll rather than like trying right. to like trick you into wasting your time. Yeah. And him saying that it's full of plums, I think I, I interpret that as a kind of like a challenge to the reader and and an invitation yeah. to mm-hmm. to to make oneself part of the story. Yes. In a way. So I and I think that that's to me, that's interesting and creative, and I would put that in the like puckish, mischievous character, <laughs> like column, not in the nihilist jerk face column. Right. And yeah. listen, if there's one thing we know about the literary community, those guys <laughs> love eating plums. They love plums. <laughs> they do. They eat other people's plums <laughs> that have been really beautifully refrigerated. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if Ooh, our listeners have other pale fire <laughs> plums that they have eaten, they should feel free to send us a note about them at overdue. We will at, forgive you. We will try. At, <laughs> at overduepod at gmail.com. Uh, hit us up on social media at twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. A couple folks spending their winter breaks listening to us and reaching out. Uh, thank you to those including Katie, Aaron, Catherine, Francis, Bowl, Sean, Amber, Katie, Krista, Joyce, Michael, and Akshat. Um, Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website up there. We have links to the books that we have read and the ones we are going to read. Our January schedule, which I think we have like just finalized. I'm loading it yeah. up now so I can Ooh. so I can go down it for everybody. Um so on January 7th, we're going to do The Golden Compass by Philip Pullman. <gasps> uh, January 14th will be Twilight Eclipse yes! by Stephanie Meyer. 
21st will be uh, The Roundhouse by Louise Erdick. Nice. Um, mm-hmm. Episode 340 on January 28th will be The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. And then our bonus episode that month will be another Stop Homer Time episode where we get from book 16 to book 19, I believe. Woo-hoo! Yep, that's it. Yeah, so it's a big, big month, big January, kicking off in the year right. Yeah. Um, there's other stuff on that website, but that's all you need to really know about. <laughs> Sophie, if they want to find more of your work, where should they go? Well, they can subscribe to or just read back issues of... Uh, the newsletter that I co-write with our wonderful friend Margaret H. Willison. Uh, it's called Two Bossy Dames, and you can find out more about that at twobossydames.substack.com. Um, if you follow me already on Twitter, uh, my username is Sophie Biblio. My account is locked right now, so if you want to chitty chat with me um, or Wait, tell me what? about like my my incredibly lo- wrong reading of this book, <laughs> I welcome your ats, uh, and you should reach me at Two Bossy Dames. Um, and... We can talk about um, my random thoughts about how this could be adapted for the small or large screen. Cool. Among other things. <laughs> well, thanks everyone for listening and happy 2019. Happy 2019. When you're listening to this. Yeah. Let's, and, uh, hey everyone, if you, if you listen to this in, in 2018, we'll see you next year. <laughs> uh, All right, everybody try to be happy. <laughs> That was a HeadGum Podcast.